we are still waiting also for the blessed senior archbishop who sits here. So when he comes, you give him access, right? Thank you. So now, turn with me to another scripture that celebrates the rapture of the church. John chapter 14. The book of John chapter 14, blessed people. And we're going to be reading verses 1 and 3. scripture I'm simply reading that I may include it in but our focus is going to be elsewhere so just bear with me right just like we touched a little bit of the wedding of the lamb and then our focus is elsewhere just to enrich you right now we together because today I want to do the modeling of the rapture church right okay now John chapter 14 I'm reading again verses 1 to 3 says do not let your heart be troubled you believe in God, believe also in me. So the Lord has placed himself in that position now where he's taking worship, the same worship the Father takes, okay? He said, believe in God the Father, believe in me too. He's beginning to reveal himself more, right? His deity and divinity. And then he says, my Father's house has many rooms. Now, again there, he's calling heaven to be the Father's house, right? My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? The other translations say, if it were not so, I would have told you. Verse 3 says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. That is now the phrase that describes the rapture of the church. That the Lord promising that he's going to come back from heaven to come all the way and take you that you also go to heaven and leave you up there with him. Right? Are we together? And then he says, you know the way to where I am going. Why have I read the scripture? I've read it because in First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 and 18, if you get to verse 15, it says, according to the Lord's own word, according to the words of Jesus himself. In other words, when you look at your Bible there in red, these words, he himself sanctioned it. He talked about the rapture of the church. Hallelujah. And so, this is a central scripture and if you compare these two scriptures the book of John chapter 14 verses 1 and 3 and you compare it with 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 13 to 18 this is what you see you see that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 13 and 14 there is a distress, right? And the Lord comes to address the distress. They are worried about their loved ones that have died. They are worried that, you know, they may be lost. They are worried about reunion. And then here also, you see that there is a distress. And the Lord says, do not let your hearts be troubled. 
And so, how does the Lord address the distress in First Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 and 18? He says, trust in Him. Trust in the Lord. Believe in the Lord. For we believe that He died and rose again. And here also He says, trust in the Lord. Believe in the Lord. Hallelujah. And in First Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 and 18, He comes from heaven to take them to heaven. And here the same thing happens. He's coming from heaven to take them to heaven. Having said so, as people are getting seated, I think we are now ready to get started on our lead scripture this session. Now, therefore, now, turn with me to the book of Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 and 13. The modeling of the rapture church, okay? And it will be a stepwise journey. Nobody should worry about anything. We are committed to doing this because this is the final session. But stepwise for all people to grasp everything necessary that you may be empowered to take it to your respective churches. In the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Okay, now. Revelation chapter 3, once you are there together, we will get started, right? Verses 7 down, the message to the church in Philadelphia. Can we get started? Thank you. It says, because we we have people tuned in globally, it says, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right... Again, he is identifying the pastor as the angel. And that speaks a lot, right? The angels are messengers. They are sangeros. They are messengers. They carry the message of the Lord Yahweh. And that tells you that they are heralds. Okay? And that literally implies that they simply faithfully transmit it. They have no capacity to transform it or mutate it or change it. And right there you see the church being faulted on that matter. Right? Because the church has perpetually changed the message of God Almighty. The screen is off. So now we are global, please. Everybody do your work so I can focus on the message. He says, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, these are the words of him who is holy and true. The Lord himself begins by first identifying himself. And on every occasion, in these seven epistles that Jesus himself wrote to the church, you are going to learn one thing, that there is a concern. The Lord has a great concern about the condition of the church so that this matter of the apostasy of the church that you see throbbing very high now on the earth 
was there already in the first church. The Lord coming out to express concern, concern about the condition of the church, the type of Christianity that the church has taken up. So the very first statements, he addresses the angel of the church in Philadelphia. He calls the pastor the angel, meaning he really expects you to transmit 100% with fidelity. And that has not happened in this age. The message has been changed to suit audience, to entertain and to massage sin. So there are big things in If you look at the seven epistles in a summary here, you see the Lord expressing some grave concern about the brand of salvation that the church has hewn for herself. Are we together? And so this is one of those occasions whereby he's expressing concern. And you'll find that depending on the condition of the church that the Lord is addressing at the point in time, the Lord then introduces himself accordingly. So that introduction is also very key. If you go through all the other epistles, you find that he has introduced himself differently. So in this particular case, he is introducing himself in a manner kind of different. Different from the way he has introduced himself in the previous letters. These are epistles of Christ to the church, right into the church. Look at, focus on me for a moment. Let's just sort out the following things. Christ himself watched the church. If you read Revelation chapter 1, you see him there standing between the golden lampstands. And the golden lampstands are the church. In other words, he's supervising the church. He's aware of the condition of the church. So if he's writing these letters, he is writing the exact position that the church is in. This is totally indisputable. But he says the following as you focus on me now. That he is writing to each respective church based on their condition. And as he writes, he first introduces himself in a manner suiting that condition he wants to address. Are we still together? And so, you see very clearly here that the Lord Almighty, Christ Jesus, the Savior, the owner of the church, the one who died for the church. He watched the church, the goings on in the church, because he's supervising the church. And he saw shortcomings. He saw that the church is not walking the right direction. And then he decided to write them a letter based on the, the kind of malady that is affecting them. Focus on me now. And right there before we move, you would stop for a moment and ask yourself, wow, if he's addressing these matters in the church, oh, you have fallen from your first love, you have done this and that. How about if Christ were to write a letter to the present day church? What type of a letter do you think he would have written to the church? Those are the things that must hit you 
as you just begin to read the scripture, they must scream at you. Hallelujah. I know that during these sessions, what has come out clean and clear you're going home with is that scripture should be screaming at you, right? Oh yes, so you are deeper. What should be screaming at you is that in this condition, he wrote them letters of rebuke. In, in each of the letters you'd find condemnation, commendation also. Praises. But you as pastors, preachers of the gospel, it would be a failure on your part to be able to use this to juxtapose the condition of the present day church. In other words, you should be asking, what does this letter transmit to the church today? Where I am the pastor. So, for example, if you were to imagine a situation, an imaginary putative situation, where Christ were to step forward and now write a letter to the present day church, what type of letter do you think he would have written? A church that has accepted homosexuality, a church that is selling the blood of Jesus at market price. A church where false prophets are harvesting money. They are going with sacks. They are telling people, sow a seed, what? Trying to sell miracles. What type of a letter do you think Christ would have written to the present day church? And that is how we ought to read this letter, blessed people, these letters. And in this introduction here, he says the following. He says to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. That is powerful. That introduction now is separated from the manner in which he has introduced himself in the previous churches. Here now, he is exalting the holiness of Christ, holy, the word holy, holiness. And by exalting holiness, the Lord is simply saying that He is the transcendent God, totally separated and set apart from the moral decay of this world. So there is a message right there that we serve a transcendent, a very lofty God. That even when he came down here, trying to use the wedding feast, the wedding events in Israel, to bring to them the eternal truth about eternity, it is so much condescendence for him to do that. Do you now understand? He really lowers himself. He's too so low to reach your level, the parochial mind of man, and use the earthly events, like weddings, which are really carnal events, because he saw that they loved weddings, they prepared the whole year for them, and there was a season for them. And to use that now to transmit a most important esoteric truth about eternity. It is condescendence of God. And so, when he's introducing himself here, he begins by saying, this is he that is holy. These are the words of him who is holy. Meaning he's saying, look at this now. He's saying that he is a separated God. Separated from the moral decay of this world. Separated from the sin of this world. He is a transcendent God, a lofty God. Very high. 
He is a God who is set apart. Set apart. Separated. And as you still look at that, then you realize that the first introductions of the first letters that are passed, he uses his description from the events in the book of Revelation chapter 1. But this particular one, now he introduces himself according to the Old Testament. Step by step. And then, by saying that this is him who is holy, he is right away already transmitting a message to the church, to humanity, to mankind. Meaning, he is up here. I am up here. I am up here. I am holy. And if any man desireth to come and be up here with me, must be holy. Already transmitting a message that he is holy. And hence, he demands holiness. Are we together? Very serious, blessed people. So, According to Old Testament, he says, this is him who is holy and true. Why true? If you saw what he said to the disciples in Matthew 24, he said, one will come in my name claiming to be the Christ. But he's saying, this is the true Christ. The genuine one. He's saying, this is the one that is dependable, trustworthy, reliable. Hallelujah. So already he's transmitting some tremendous eternal truths. And he's saying that if God the Father could entrust him with a mission to deliver mankind, because he's trustworthy, he's true, he's genuine, is dependable, reliable. How about you as a church? Have you fully entrusted him with your life? God the Father entrusted him with the eternal mission to deliver the church. And he faithfully delivered the church. How about you? Why are you still hesitating? Sita Sita. Why are you still hesitating to give him the total of your life? These are some of the major questions that arise on this journey. Blessed people, he just introduces himself, right? And so, again he says, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write this, these are the words of him who is holy and true and who holds the key of David. Can we just look at the holy first of all and go through holy because Isaiah appears before the throne and he hears Seraphim pronouncing the holiness of God three times. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, right? So the Lord is saying, but Jesus is introducing himself here as God. That is serious as God. Thank you for those who have clapped. I bless you eternally. 
that is very powerful. He deserves that, right? And Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, I'm reading. It says, Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. That is serious. So, the Lord Jesus is introducing himself here as him that is holy. Him who is holy. So in other words, he's saying, he is God Almighty. That is serious. Who died for the church then? He is God Almighty. Let's continue. Isaiah chapter 6, John will be there. The book of Isaiah chapter 6, 1 onwards up to 7 probably. He says the following. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So King Uzziah was known as the man of the land, the man of the soil, right? Because he had big farms, the people walked to the farms, they earned a living by working for him in those farms, cattle, fields of crop, wheat. And so when King Uzziah died, there was a national panic. Everybody panicked. They wondered what shall be of us. They were earning from him, from his enterprise, right? And then he dies. And so, at the death of King Uzziah, then the Lord takes the prophet of the Lord Isaiah before his throne, right? And he shows him that the true king of Israel, the king of Judah, is actually seated on the throne. And there is not lacking at any time the king seated on the throne, the king of Judah, that they may know that he is seated on the throne. Don't panic about the death of King Uzziah. The king of Israel, king of Judah, is seated on his throne. That's what he's saying here. And he goes on to say, verse 2, Above him were seraphim, that's a class of angels. Above him were seraphim, each had six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two wings they covered their feet. And with two other wings they were flying, meaning zealous, readiness to serve. So there are two wings available anytime to go as required, right? These are the fiery angels, the burning angels, they are flames, okay? And then he says, And they were calling to one another, meaning they are not addressing the Lord directly, they are addressing one another out of reverence. They are now at the throne, even flying above the throne. 
they were calling to one another, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. That is serious, blessed people. They are pronouncing the holiness of God. And then verse 5, he says, Woe unto me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I have, I mean, I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. That is now the demand of, of on whosoever approaches the Holy God of Israel. The demand, he levies on you. Whosoever approaches the Holy God of Israel, there is a demand. A prerequisite. So when he says, this is he who is holy, he's essentially transmitting an instruction to you that all those that long to come and fellowship with him in heaven must be holy. Are we together? And so, and then Isaiah, Isaiah saw the glory of the Christ. Because the book of John, if you turn to John 12, 41, it says the following. Then you understand why Christ has introduced himself as God when he's about to talk to the church in Philadelphia. He has introduced himself as God Almighty. So John 12, 41, he says the following. John chapter 12, verse 41, he says, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. This is amazing. That the one that is enthroned there is Christ Jesus. So we need to honor Jesus more, much more, right? Hallelujah. So when he's talking to the church in Philadelphia, he introduces himself as God. This is he that is holy. Him who is holy. And so, why have I said that when he pronounces his holiness at that introduction, he's essentially transmitting a demand that whosoever wants to come to heaven must be holy. Because holiness is one of those attributes that are communicable. Communicable attributes of God. When God Almighty wants to talk about the model rapture church, the model church for rapture, then now he talks about holiness as a communicable attribute. He exalts it. When he wants now to raise a church that enters glory, now holiness, communicable, meaning demanding, right? Hallelujah. Very powerful. And then he says, the other, attribute, the, the other thing you pick out from this scripture, let's move on now, let's go back to it again. Revelation chapter 3 together with you. The church in Philadelphia,
Revelation chapter 3 verses 7 all the way down to verse 13. So he said, These are the words of him who is holy and true. Now you understand better. And who holds the key of David. That is very serious. He's saying here that the prophecy that Nathan gave David you remember when David wanted to construct a house unto the Lord and Nathan the prophet came and he inquired of him should I construct a house for the Lord in that evening on that evening he said yes you can because the Lord is with you but when he went to sleep the Lord spoke with his prophet at night so Nathan the prophet came he came back and told David no you cannot but the greater son of David would appear and it is him that would build the house unto the Lord right so now that is amazing do you remember the Canaanite woman son of David have mercy on me my Lord son of David she positively identified him so David is a messianic office. Everybody knew the Messiah would be the son of David. And now, when it's time for him to introduce the model church for rapture, the rapture church, then he says, this is him who is holy and true, the one that holds the key of David. Very powerful. Meaning, he alone now has the preserve, the right on whom he admits into the kingdom of God. Follow me on this now. This is very serious now. He's talking about the authority of the Messiah. The sovereignty of the Messiah, you're going to see very shortly, the sovereignty of the Messiah. In other words, he's saying, that when Nathan spoke to David and said, don't worry, the greater son of David would build the house unto the Lord. He is now there speaking to this rapture church, Philadelphia, and telling them that look, now that prophecy of Nathan has been fulfilled. Because finally the key has arrived to the greater son of David. And there is a symbolism here we are going to look at here. We are going to look at Eliakim. A symbolism. You will find that he that holds that key also holds the right of admission. Whom he admits. So that's just how powerful the Messiah is now. He's relaying it right there to a blessed church, a rapture church, a model church. But it is him that has the authority to choose whom he admits into the kingdom of God or not. So there are for all people that want to enter heaven tuned in, if you're Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, unborn again, you must first accept Jesus. That is the message coming out of there. You must be born again, repent and be born again first of all. Hallelujah. On this journey we still continue, blessed people. And so, he goes on to say, again, 
Revelation chapter 3 we are reading on. That he is holding the key of David. That key does mighty things. I want to open up today on the role of that key. The Spaniel, they say, Jabez de David. The key of David. That is a massive key. He was alluding to that key already when he was speaking in the book of Genesis chapter 3 verse 8. Adam, where are you? That is the key that opened the door to the grace. You remember too well Genesis 3.24. It is shut. Because of the fall. Shut. Cannot access where the tree of life is. Meaning where the father is. Until he came with that key. The key of David. And opened as we are going to see in Matthew 27.50 and 51. Then brought the church in, right? So step by step, blessed people. The key of David. Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. Step by step. The book of Isaiah 22, 22. He says the following. Isaiah chapter 22 verse 22. He says, I'll place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. Alluding to the messianic office that is coming. The key of David, and that whatsoever he opens, no one can shut. And whatsoever he shuts, no one can open. Back to Revelation 3, the church in Philadelphia says, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. So that is essentially alluding to sovereignty. That this is the sovereign God, the unassailable, incontestable God, whose decisions cannot be contested. And the authority cannot. If he shuts the door, it is done. If he opens, it is open. So we are going to see him use this key. Hallelujah. We are going to see him use this key to open a door for a beloved church that I want to use tonight to model the rapture church. Hallelujah. Step by step. So the key of David still. Matthew 28 Verse 18, it says the following. Matthew 28, 
versículo 18. Matthew 28, 18 says, 